Welcome back to another episode of our podcast, Stern Chats. This episode will conclude Stern Chats Season 1. Can you even believe it? I feel like we just got started. The good news is we're finishing with a bang. So, Sherry, tell everybody, who do we have on the show today? It's hard to imagine, Frank, but we have the distinct honor and privilege of speaking with the dean of NYU's Stern School of Business, Peter Henry, the ninth and youngest in the school's history and our current dean. Dean Henry is a distinguished economist and professor who was most recently at Stanford University as the Konosuke Matsushita Professor of International Economics and the John and Cynthia Fry Gunn Faculty Scholar. He is also the author of the best-selling book, Turnaround, Third World Lessons for First World Growth. That is a lot of incredible things that he's done, huh, Sherry? It certainly is. And along with his numerous accolades, Dean Henry also personally welcomed Frank and I, along with our fellow classmates, into school. I can just remember hearing him speak to us during orientation about the importance of humility, hard work, and getting to know everyone as an individual. Well, he certainly has laid the foundation for our MBA experience, and we look forward to hearing what he's going to do after the deanship. So, Sherry, should we start the show and hear from the dean? Let's start the show. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Here with today's program are your hosts, Frank Fericchio and Sherry Holt. Well, Sherry, we are so lucky to have Dean Peter Henry here. When we first started this in the fall, you're the number one person we wanted to talk to. That's 100% truth. Well, I'm excited to be here and um, flattered to know I was number one on that list, but um, I hope you're not uh, not damning others with faint praise. (laughs) (laughs) No way. Definitely not. He's got to make new goals now. I know. You know what I mean? Got to shoot even higher. Shoot even higher. (laughs) So for people that don't know you, you're obviously very famous to us. What would be like a 20-second intro for an audience that's never met you before. My name is Peter Henry. I am a husband and father of four kids, a native of Jamaica, a U.S. citizen, naturalized in 1987, and a professor of economics who has been very, very lucky to have the opportunity to teach and do research at some of the world's leading institutions. And been given an opportunity to to open doors for other people. And I've tried very hard to do that wherever I've gone. So some of the things that people don't see on your resume, and they, they may not know about you except for your bio, is you're from Jamaica mm-hmm. originally. What's a young Dean Peter Henry like growing <laughs> up in Jamaica? Yeah, so I think not many people realize this, but you know, when I say I'm from Jamaica, not only am I from Jamaica, I'm from a really rural part of Jamaica. So I grew up the first nine years of my life in an environment where, you know, Jamaica had telephones when I was a kid, but we lived on 20 acres in the middle of nowhere. So Jamaica's an island consists of parishes, which are like states you can think of. And we live in the parish of St. Mary, which is on the north side of the island. And we lived first in a place called Highgate. Uh, Highgate was famous for having a chocolate factory, which at the time was Cadbury's chocolate. It's now Highgate chocolate. And this is relevant to the story because we moved to Highgate because my dad was an oil chemist. And he was the manager the main manager of Cadbury's chocolate. So my dad basically ran a chocolate factory. So you were a kid in a candy store. I was a kid in a candy store, right? So that is my dream. So, so you know, because as an oil chemist, he was responsible for 
coming up with the formulas for the different flavors of chocolate. So we lived in Highgate, which is because St. Mary's is the cocoa growing capital of Jamaica. And my dad worked at Cadbury's and my mom worked at a place called Orange River. Orange River was an agricultural research station. My mother also had a PhD. My mother had a PhD in biology, uh, botany actually. My dad's PhD is in chemistry. And we can talk more about their background maybe later because that's important as to kind of how I ended up in this job. That's a pretty intense scientific background just as a kid to have. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really think about it, but but as a kid it was like, my my dad runs a chocolate factory. (laughs) (laughs) I just want the candy. Exactly. (laughs) And I remember going to his office on Saturday mornings and you go in there and you'd see the big, literally the big vats of chocolate. You'd smell the place and in his office in the factory he had drawers filled with like samples and boxes of like candy peel like basically kind of like candied fruits because they use them in different flavors and stuff oh nice uh, oh, and by the way <laughs> so my, my mom researched diseases that affected uh, cocoa so we were a vertically integrated family <laughs> oh my goodness. All right. Now oh. we know what that means. There we go. All right. We just learned about that. So Highgate was um, the first place we lived, but then we moved to an even more rural place in St. Mary. We moved to a place called Hampstead, which is also in St. Mary, but Hampstead was the most amazing place I've ever lived. Hampstead was up in the hills. My parents bought, and it's going to sound like we were wealthy, but we weren't wealthy. You got to remember, this is Jamaica in the 1970s. My parents were educated, which meant that they were middle class, so they had some disposable income, and so it was cheap to buy property. So we lived on like 20 acres on a property called Clifton in Hampstead, and to get to your house, you had to go up this drive, this winding drive, which is about 150 yards up a hill. And from the second story of our house, there's a porch, and you could look out and you could see the Caribbean Sea. And we had no telephone. I had six dogs growing up. We had chickens. We had a bunch of rabbits. We had goats. And we had one cow. That was my entertainment. In the summers, I used to roam around the 20 acres with my dogs. I would tell stories. I'd go up into the, I'd go up into the hills. I'd, I'd watch birds. I made slingshots. When I was seven years old, I knew how to handle a machete. Because I, I would... You had to go back in the bush, right? So you had to you had to kind of cut your way through the bush, and like you'd cut down like a tree limb to make it. This, this is a, so. Cherry's like, Cherry's like, this is not true. This is all. I, this is totally I just can't true. Imagine my mother like handing me a machete at seven. Here you are, child. <laughs> Run through the jungle. <laughs> so I had a really rural upbringing, but it was amazing because also the neat thing about it was there was that part of my childhood, and you know we had rivers on the property, and it was it was like a really magical kind of storybook upbringing. But then often in Jamaica. When I was a kid, the lights would go out, the power would go out. And my parents, who you probably figured out at this point, had a pretty good education, thanks to the fact that they got scholarships all the way through school. But my dad loved to act. He loved to declaim scenes from Shakespeare or poems. And so the lights would go out. My dad would tell us stories about the Trojan horse. And get him so picture, picture yourself on the upstairs veranda looking out on the Caribbean with the moonlight. Crickets are making noise, and you, all you're hearing are these sounds of nature, and there's a candle, and my dad, who's like about my size, is sort of booming out these stories about the Trojan horse, and he's like reciting the rhyme of the ancient mariner from Coleridge, you know, my horse, my horse, my kingdom for a horse, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. It was just a really magical experience, that whole childhood, from the dogs, to the birds, to the slingshots, to the, you know, the, the 50 different fruits we had growing on our property. 
it was an amazing way to grow up and it's just really your imagination could just run wild that's incredible because oh you know gosh. most kids their bedtime stories is just you know the giving tree with a faint hum of the air conditioner in the background <laughs> <laughs> that's all you get exactly you know that sounds like yeah like right out of a storybook yeah so so it was, it was so Jamaica was really ideal in many ways but you know I didn't realize at the time Jamaica so this is circa 1970s mid 1970s okay I was born in 69 because my parents had moved back to Jamaica from uh, they've been graduate students in the United States but my parents were um, had moved back to Jamaica and in the mid-1970s, a lot was going on that I wasn't, you know, I was kind of aware of it as a kid, but like most kids, not really super concerned about it. So Jamaica was going through a lot of, um, I would say, economic turmoil. The country was kind of going through an economic freefall. We had a prime minister who was experimenting with democratic socialism. And I remember it first really hitting home when my dad changed jobs. So my dad worked for Cadbury's, but Cadbury's, you know, during Manley, Nor Michael Manley's time as prime minister of Jamaica, decided that it was going to be easier for them to run their business in West Africa in the 1970s and then Jamaica because all the restrictions the government was putting on imports and nationalizing industry and so my dad changed jobs and must have been about 1977 started working for a company called Separat it was a Canadian company but the, the significance of that was Separat was in Kingston and we lived in St. Mary and Kingston was a good I don't know it was a good 40 mile drive away from where we lived the biggest thing that affected me as a kid was just that I wasn't going to my dad's office anymore on Saturday mornings and he was driving a long way oh so you stayed at the house we stayed at the house but my dad commuted Oh, wow. Back and forth. And that was a big change. And that's when I sort of sort of realized that things were kind of changing. So it's sort of this ideal place to be a kid against the backdrop of, you know, frankly, uh, and I went to this you know, went to this incredible school called Glenlee. It was called the Glenlee School for Little Ladies and Gentlemen. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> you were in a, a storybook. Uh, I was in a storybook. <laughs> Not only was, you know, Jamaica was going through turmoil. My dad had to change jobs. My mom was having a harder and harder time at work getting the equipment she needed to do her research. And the Glen Lee School was going through its own challenges as well because I learned we left the country in 1978 because my parents just decided it was going to be easier to raise a family. I have three siblings, two brothers and a sister. My parents just decided it's going to be easier to raise a family of six back in the United States. And so shortly after we left, Glen Lee actually closed as well. So an idyllic setting, but there was a lot going on. A lot of changes. A lot of changes going on. And it, it sounds changes. like when you left, it's never really going to be quite the same. Like you had a window exactly. into that idyllic exactly. life. It was brief and then it closed. Exactly. How did your parents broach the subject of leaving with you? Yeah, because you probably love Jamaica. I did. Point. It's been a hard conversation. Yeah. So it's funny though. I love Jamaica, but you got to remember. So my here's my here here I am living in this great sort of this idyllic setting in many ways as a kid. But yeah, for me, this is sort of the the, the 1970s. You know, 1976 was the 200th bicentennial in the United States. I remember my brother and sister had gone off to uh, they did a summer trip with my dad to New York and Florida and gone to Disney World and brought back all these comic books related to the bicentennial. So the image of the United States was in big. my head was huge. It was huge. I had never been to the United States. My only experience in the United States was like, you know, so remember it was hard to get things into Jamaica at that time because there were all these import restrictions. And so my aunt, my dad's sister who lived in New York, in New York would send us like these barrels, like literally a barrel of stuff with like, to like ship stuff. And so, um, you know, we would occasionally get cold where we were. So she'd, she'd ship us like, you know, like quilt, which seems like an exotic thing to us. <laughs> right? Or I, I, I still remember actually getting a pair of like NHL bed sheets 
sheets. Oh, man. Right? It was just a cool, you're like, oh, this is so exotic, right? Because of all the hockey that's happening. <laughs> all the hockey, <laughs> hockey and chicken. And we'd also get like little catalogs, like J.C. Penny catalogs and Sears Roebuck. So I remember like, we'd go through these catalogs, like, wow. That's look such up. a tease. You know? Like, you can't this is import this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can actually buy <laughs> right, it. Right, right. But here's what you're missing. And occasionally, if you go to Kingston and save like Ravers, you get like an American apple in the, from like the grocery store, as opposed to like the 500 local fruits that were. Was, there was no shortage of fruit, but an American apple. So <laughs> there were these sort of, you had, the, you had these images in your head of like this kind of legendary sort of place, right? And so the thing that I remember most about the move actually was, you know, my dad had started commuting. And then I remember my dad in, must have been like December of 1978, had gone off to the U.S. So remember, my parents had been graduate students in the United States. They had gotten scholarships. They got they met when they were undergrad at the University of the West Indies. They got married, went off to Chicago because my dad got a scholarship to get a, a PhD in chemistry at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And my mom had gotten a scholarship from the British government called a Commonwealth Scholarship. She, she could have gone anywhere in the world to study. But my dad had to be in Chicago. So my mom was like, okay, I'll go to the University of Chicago. <laughs> Why <anyway>. not? <laughs> <laughs> so my mom got her PhD in the of Chicago. And I'm bringing all the story back to December because my parents went off to Chicago get the other PhDs. My sister was born while they were graduate students. So my sister was a U.S. citizen. Finished their PhDs. They then moved to Canada for my dad's <laughs> first job. And then they moved back to Jamaica in the early 1960s after independence because they want to help rebuild the country. So when it comes time to move, my dad is off to Chicago trying to find a job because that's kind of where they know. And so I didn't know this at the time, but my dad was interviewing with Kraft for a job in research and development. So in December 1970, my dad's off interviewing somewhere in Chicago. And we are in Jamaica. And I, I can still remember packing up the farm, basically. What happened to the, the animals? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Where's, where's that cow? Yeah, the one lonely cow. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, had a pet, I had a pet goat named Supergirl, actually. Supergirl? Supergirl. Yeah, Supergirl. <laughs> so my uncle, my dad's brother, he came and got the goats. And actually, the goats were a gift from him, actually, from oh, my, okay. uncle, my uncle Glenn. So to a good home. But I remember, I, rem I remember packing up the farm. I remember feeling a little wistful then. But you asked about remembering leaving. That's, that's, that's tough as a kid. Yeah. You know, even yeah. to come to a place where, you know, admittedly, the marketing materials for America were pretty exciting. Very exciting. But I mean, what's <laughs> it like when you get here? So we flew to New York. I can remember leaving, the, leaving, uh, flying out of Kingston, getting to New York. We stayed in New York for about a month with my aunt who lived in Brooklyn. All of us crammed into her little two-bedroom apartment. And my mom had bought a bunch of, like, math workbooks and, like, made us do all this math homework and stuff. <laughs> fun, Mom. Yeah, a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. And then we... Um, then we, then we flew to Chicago. must have been, it was like March 1978. And I remember, because I didn't even realize, we, we, we all piled into the Hilton in uh, suburban Skokie, Illinois. But my first day of school, I started in the third grade in Mrs. Goldberg's class. And I remember my mom sent me off to school that day. She said two things to me. She said, you know, this is your only pair of jeans. Don't get them dirty. And she said to me, if anybody offers you drugs, you say no. In the third grade? In the third grade. <laughs> wow. So my mother had apparently knew more about America than I did. <laughs> yeah. But by the way, just to be put things in context, this was not a tough school district. So my parent, my so like typical immigrants, my dad's mom's strategy was to find the cheapest house they could find in the best school district. This was not a tough school I was going into, but my mother was prepared, for, you know, for this tough upper middle class Chicago suburb. <laughs> well, I mean, clearly your family is a family of education lovers, so that is not surprising. So I show up at school, and I'm, I walk into Mrs. Goldberg's class, and she introduces me to the class. This is her new classmate, Peter Henry. He's from Jamaica. And I'll never forget, guy walked up to me, named name is Stephen Ellis, and he says, Aloha. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what? Like, what? I'm like, clearly we haven't done geography yet. Because remember, cause remember I'm, I, I'm growing up at 20 acres in the middle of nowhere. All we have is Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, my goodness. So I And, and my mom can tell you, I used to, so this is why I did a lot of friends. I used to 
pour. I used to spend my weekends pouring over the Atlas. So, oh my God. Wow. Dude. <laughs> wow. You're like, um, why don't you go ahead and sit down? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's his name? Steve? And you're like, hey, Steve, why don't you go back to coloring? Go back to coloring, Steve. <laughs> so that was, one, that was one distinct memory. You know, my parents were very focused. I mean, they left Jamaica for a very particular reason. You know, the same reason most immigrants leave, which is, you know, we've got a better shot at educating the kids, our kids the way we want them educated by moving to the United States. It was like no nonsense, no foolishness. Well, so what did you what did you bring with you from Jamaica in terms of the history and culture, and how did that jive with the U.S.? Yeah, so I remember at first uh, my accent got made fun of a little bit, and I think that just sort of dissipated. As you can tell, I don't have much of a Jamaican accent now. You speak uh, you speak uh, like a New Yorker, <laughs> right? Like a New Yorker, which is which is really to say like anyone because this is like the biggest melting pot in the world, right? Indeed. Yeah, I've got a very generic accent now, which I think it's I think it's somewhere around the age of twelve. Your language. Which your speech patterns stick, and I was like nine. So the accent went, but I think I brought a certain perspective, I think, and a sense of self. I just, you know, had a really strong sense of who I was because of my parents and because of where I came from. You know, it was it was it was a challenging time. I mean, I just, look, I mean, Jamaica was a very different than suburban Chicago. There just weren't many kids that looked like me. But I didn't really, I didn't really give that a lot of thought. And it was interesting because my parents, got to remember, so it was a very affluent suburb. You know, we weren't poor, we didn't have a lot of extra stuff. And so the kids were going on spring break and going to Florida and doing, you know, and like we just didn't do that. And so I think that, you know, the biggest thing that I brought was just, and this is probably, you know, didn't endear me to a lot of people, but just like a sense of purpose, right? Like I just sort of, you know, kind of knew why I was there. You know, my dad always drove old cars. Like my dad never bought new, he like, he bought used cars. And you gotta remember, so if you remember, just get a good, you gotta project yourself back to childhood, right? And think how much your parents used to embarrass you when they did certain things, okay? So my dad would like, I'd go to a friend's house, my dad would pick me up. And like these old beat up cars. Just like mortifying. Like what are we talking about here? Like a like MC a, Gremlin? Ah, uh, Ford Maverick. Oh, that's that actually looks similar. Yes. You know what I mean? Like same class of car, right? <laughs> yeah. It was our first like a green Ford Maverick. So I was embarrassed, but my dad, it's amazing. Like so you, you know, we, a lot of my friends lived in really fancy homes too, especially when I was in high school. My dad never batted an eye. He was just always just so unconcerned about anything that didn't have to do with who you're supposed to be as a human being. So he'd get out of that, that Ford Maverick, you know, at some friend's mansion, go up and ring the doorbell, and he'd start having a conversation with their parents. And I just remember being like, wow, like my dad is just, I didn't, I didn't really think about this at the time, but he was just so dignified the way he carried himself. And I think back to that now, and I just realized how much that was rubbing off on me. It was like, it doesn't matter how much money you have, or what kind of car you drive, or what you know, pants you're wearing is all about how you carry yourself. Yeah, so I think what I brought with me was just a sense of like self. I don't know if that makes any sense. Absolutely. You know, it sounds like, you know, your, your time in Jamaica and your time in, in Chicago, you know, obviously very, very different places. Mm -hmm. As a kid, you know, just seeing how different the rural Jamaican yeah. and the affluent Chicago suburbs are. How do you rectify that discrepancy in the lifestyle difference? Yeah, it's challenging. It's really challenging, actually, because one of the things I remember, just to be really blunt, I'll put it out there, you know, Jamaica was very much sort of, you know, um, or very orderly places, my grandfather would say, and you were supposed to be well-mannered, okay? In the U.S., you know, there was, there was a certain 
amount of healthy disrespect that kids were allowed to have, which I think is really good in many respects, but I saw it go a little too far sometimes. And so what I, what I learned to do a lot of was basically kind of navigating that. I, I think I ended up being very unpopular with some of my friends because their parents liked me a lot because uh. <laughs> I was like the respectful friend they would have over. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, great, here comes Peter Henry again. <laughs> Yeah. And that was probably Steve. my mom was better than me, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah Steve Allison. Steve, said. get out of here, man. You don't know anything. <laughs> but so there was definitely, there was, a, there was a lot of navigating. And so I think, you know, you know, being a Jamaican immigrant, being like the only black kid uh, in the environment where I was, I just, there were a lot of things I just had to learn to navigate, right? And then I had to learn to just appreciate a lot of different perspectives. Very different than where I, than where I'd grown up. And I wasn't thinking about this consciously. You know, it was, it was in there. It was in there. Like as a kid, because as a kid, you're you're trying to just find your way, right? You want to fit in. You want to fit in. You, you want to have an ice cream sandwich. You want to <laughs> play kickball. That's the you second know? thing I thought of was ice cream sandwich, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you want to and you want to get invited to stuff too, right? But th- this difference, you know, your life's work. Can we say? Is it fair to say your life's work is in economics? Yes. Okay. So. You know, your life's work, you know, you wrote the book Turnaround, mm-hmm. and it's Turnaround, Third World Lessons for First World Growth. And it was a very successful book, and it, and that parlayed itself into more economic opportunities for you. How did that time, you know, transitioning from Jamaica to America, and those differences between the two inspire your future work as an economist? So economics is, economics is the vehicle. Kind of the goal or the destination has always been about giving people better life chances. And I, so I talked about my parents' experiences as kids how they wouldn't have gone to uh, high school, let alone college, let alone graduate school, had they not gotten scholarships. And I could tell you lots of stories about, you know, my, my, my father's parents were both teachers and the lives that they changed in rural St. Elizabeth, Pedro Plains, Jamaica, teaching boys and girls who became men and women how to read and write and do arithmetic. Basically teaching the children of the poor farmers of that community how to kind of keep track of basic stocks and flows so they could be more productive. So economics for me, is a way of giving people better life chances. It's about, and in particular, I remember my grandmother, who, my dad's mom, who lived uh, in Kingston. You know, one of the really also magical things about my childhood was, was spending time with her on her porch. So she was a teacher and, and just would share with me all kinds of interesting books and ideas, and I would spend time on her porch just reading and writing and, like, tracing things out of books and talking to her. But I remember every once in a while we would get interrupted by a knock at, the, at her front gate. And there's a lady named Miss Mama who'd, who would be at the gate. And my grandmother, you have to remember, so in Jamaica you never, this is one big difference between Jamaica and the United States. In Wilmette, Illinois, which is where we moved, you just don't, you almost never see anybody poor. You don't see anybody begging on the street. It's a very sanitized environment. You know, you've got to go to your church and go to a homeless shelter or like a food kitchen to actually have that experience. In Jamaica, the upper middle class is right there next to Miss Mama. So Miss Mama would come to the gate, no shoes, tattered clothes, and interestingly also, like a big belly. And so you gotta make a choice when you're someone like that knocks at your gate. Either you basically ignore them, or you can do what my grandmother did, which is go to the gate, open it, invite her in, and tell her to sit down. And so my grandmother would always ask Miss Mama if she was hungry. And Miss Mama would always say yes. My grandmother would always go into the kitchen. She'd bring out like a big glass of milk and some bread. They'd sit there and talk. Miss Mama would eat this, and then she'd go away. I remember on one occasion asking my grandmother, said, you know, why? You know, Miss Mama has a big belly. Why is she always hungry? And my grandmother explained to me that some people were hungry, had big bellies, not because they had too much to eat, because they could never get enough to eat. 
And so to me, economics is all about Miss Mom. Like, how do we how do we ensure that people like that get access to opportunity? And so, yeah, the life's work is, you know, economics is, to me, it's all about how do we create environments in which people can actually have a chance to, to maximize their potential, have the dignity of having a job, generating an income, raising their families, being able to write about that and being able to be in some of the roles that I've been in. And in particular, I think the ability of countries to trade and the, and the embracing of that to a greater extent in the late 1980s and early 1990s and through the 2000s where we saw miraculous rises in living standards, you know, punctuated by this great financial crisis. When, although I've never actually met Barack Obama, I was, I was brought to his campaign through a friend of mine named Austin Goolsby, who was his chief economic advisor for a number of years. When that opportunity presented itself, I jumped at it because, you know, macroeconomics is like the ultimate scale business, right? You, you know, if you start a business, you can maybe employ 10 people, 20 people, 30 people of the business scales, you know, and becomes a large corporation someday, you know, tens of thousands. But a macro economy, you're talking about millions of people. And so to me, the idea of, especially being from a small country, when I encountered economics for the first time when I was in, in college, I said, wow, here's a discipline that's going to let me think about why it is that Jamaica is poor and the United States is really wealthy and what we can do to kind of close that gap. Of all the positions that you've held, and there have been many, what has allowed you to further that goal of bridging that gap? So it's interesting. You know, when I decided to go get a PhD in economics, my life's goal was to get a PhD in economics, and I was going to change the world from the ivory tower. Just that simple. Yeah, just that simple. Simple as that. Done. <laughs> I was going to write some articles, really insightful. The townsfolk. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. The prime ministers were going to call me. <laughs> I was going to go give advice. They were going to implement it. The funny Bam. thing is, I'm pretty sure prime ministers have called you. Rising. <laughs> <laughs> and still didn't, didn't do it. Yeah. It's a big machine. Yeah, a lot a, of change. Yeah, there's a, there's a gap between someone calling you and them actually doing what you actually <laughs> suggested they do. So not that simple. Not that simple. But that was the, that was the goal, right? And went off and got a PhD. PhD economics, got a job at Stanford Business School, almost as good as a school as Stern. Almost as, <laughs> almost as good as Stern. Because this is the best business school. <laughs> Absolutely. And started working on these issues and achieved some success in that. But one of the things I realized was that, you know, ideas matter, but people matter at least as much as ideas. And so when I was given the opportunity to do this role, for instance, I think one of the greatest impacts I've been able to have is actually just opening doors for students. So raising money for scholarships, whether they be MBA scholarships or have done a lot to raise money for undergraduate scholarships. We've done a lot to raise money for high-achieving, low-income students. And that's really so gratifying because to me, when somebody, when you, when, when you allow someone an opportunity to go to school for free, the way my parents went to school for free. And so to be able to open doors, probably the most, that's probably the most meaningful thing I think I've done in, in my career. And what I, what, I, what I hope to do now is to take... You know, going back to the earlier point, is that you can't just snap your fingers and have people do what you expect to do. I've learned a lot about leading in this job. Um, we've had a, a lot of changes we've needed to make here at Stern. You know, I got here in 2010. We were uh, facing the headwinds of the financial crisis. We're the world's arguably most famous finance school. Um, really important history. Major, major contributions to the world by educating group of folks over the last 50 years who've gone out and, and led the financial services industry. And we've educated lots of people who've done other things as well. But we really needed to think hard about how do we maintain our excellence in that area of finance. And, and I say and, not but or or, but and be as important to what I would call now Silicon Alley and the new economy 
as we for the next 50 years as we've been to Wall Street the past 50. So getting from A to B in that particular example of, 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 of helping you know the school position itself for the future, you know, just like trying to think about how do you change a, a, a country's macro economy, it's not so simple. Not one phone call. Not one phone call, not <laughs> one meeting, right? <laughs> a lot of thank you notes, a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations, a lot of fits and starts, a lot of experiences that feel like you're pushing against a wall. And I think it was Thoreau who said, you know, you know, every wall is a door. And I was, you know, another thing I did as a kid that um, is not well known, I was a big Dungeons and Dragons guy. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I was into D&D. That is not listed on the resume. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, so I, I like that Thoreau quote because I, I, I imagine myself playing D&D back when I was like in fifth grade my buddy Glenn Dorn who was the dungeon master and he's like narrating us through this scene it's like you're in a cave or you know a castle so when you're and you're in the dark and you're feeling what you're, you're, you're trying to find that secret door and so leading is a lot like you feel like you're running into a wall like gosh I can see where we need to go you're like why can't anybody else see it that's that's your first instinct and some sometimes but then you realize you know what no that you have to help them see it those skills that you develop, you have to develop if you want to lead an institution, have been really useful to me because you know, I was saying ideas matter, people matter at least as much as ideas. Without people, you can't do anything. And so one of the things that I hope to do, um, this probably sounds a little modest, but I hope to use those skills that I've learned about helping people see opportunities, finding doors when there are apparent walls, to meld that with some of the thinking I've done about economies and see whether I can be a little more useful this time around. <laughs> yeah. What said prime ministers? <laughs> yeah. Right. I want to I want to ask you again about 2010 when you yes. when you did take over as the dean. Um, you were only 40 years old when that happened. Correct. And you know, you're saying the headwinds of the financial crisis and some would have called Stern at that time a finance trade school. Mm-hmm. Or some have called it that. And you in the years that you were dean have transformed Stern into one of the best total MBA programs in the country. When you came in at 40 years old, the youngest dean to ever be at Stern, what goals did you have? Let me me frame it two two ways. I would say excellence and access were the two goals. So I wanted us to deepen and diversify our excellence. What does deepening and diversify excellence mean? To your point, it means we were the world's best finance school and we were not going to give that up. So deepen that excellence. Okay. Even as we were diversifying our excellence. What does diversifying excellence mean? Well, it means that we needed to be as important to Silicon Alley for the next 50 years as we were to Wall Street for the past 50. So that's, that was the excellence agenda, broadly speaking. The access agenda was that um, we're a great institution. I don't think I can take credit for that. We're, we're a great institution. I got here. I've just tried to get us to focus our greatness in, in new and useful ways. But we're a relatively poor institution in terms of our financial resources. NYU as a whole has a roughly $3 billion endowment for 50,000 students on a per capita basis. That's in the lowest. 25% of major U.S. research universities. Stern has about a $300 million endowment. We've got over 5,000 students when you add up all of our full-time MBA students, part-time MBAs, undergrads, and all of our various programs. Just to give you a point of comparison, the school from which I came, Stanford Business School, is about a 
$2 billion endowment. Yeah. I think Harvard's, Harvard's got a $3 billion endowment. That's pretty different. Very different. You know, roughly 40% of Stanford Business School's operating income comes from endowment. Roughly 95% of operating income comes from tuition. So you already have like a huge challenge just in that deficit. So, so our biggest challenge is, okay, there's so many great things we could do. We got to find the resources to fund them. And in particular, on the access agenda, we didn't have any full scholarships for undergraduates. And I felt like that was something we really needed to be able to do. Wait, do you mean zero? When I got here, we had, to the best of my knowledge, we had zero. I mean, when I say full scholarships, I mean everything covered. Right. So you can go to school without any debt. I can't believe we had zero, we had zero though, Sherry. <laughs> That seems to be like a really important and common thing. So, so we wanted to create more opportunities because, again, you think about what, what are we trying to do? We're a great business school, but for what? Right? So we're trying to create value, and we're trying to, we're trying to you know, generate you know, people and ideas that can change the world to create value in the world. And we, we want you to make a lot of money when you come to, <laughs> as a result of having come to search. nothing wrong with that. But we just think that the way in which you go about doing that ought to be really thoughtful. In other words, if you can find a big unmet need in the world, some big problem that needs to be solved, that's a great way to make money. It's a great way to have a big impact on the world as well. But if you're going to do that, if that's your mission, then you've got to bring into the environment people from lots of different perspectives. Why? Because the biggest challenges facing the world are not easily solved if you just bring in the room 12 guys who all studied engineering, right? And I use guys, you know, purposefully. You want some engineers, you want some mathematicians, you want some people who were accountants, and you want people from different income backgrounds. And so if we only have, you know, if we if we're only bring, if we end up being a place that because of our, our, our resource constraints only has kids from a middle class backgrounds, we're doing everybody a disservice. Because because the, the conversations that people are going to be having are going to become, you know, kind of unidimensional. You need Miss Mama. You need Miss Mama in the room. Right? You need Miss Mom in the room because Miss Mom is like, you know what? My world looks a little different than your world. Yeah, she's got different wants, needs, and desires. Exactly. And that's yeah. and those are business opportunities. So it's not so I think sometimes people I sometimes feel as though people say, gee, you know, you know, here's your know, Peter's Peter's sort of the goody good dean, okay? And I am sort of a goody good. I'll admit that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> all right, okay. We all have our faults. <laughs> all right. <laughs> but it's not about being nice. It's about seeing opportunity and so everything from the excellence agenda to like creating a launch to saying you know we want people to think about big problems it's not because I, I, I never wanted everyone to, everyone to be social entrepreneurs what we wanted to do is we wanted to create we wanted to create a canvas on which the investment bankers the social entrepreneurs the tech folk everyone could see a place for themselves to paint and we felt that the rubric of value creation was the right way to do that we want to be the business school that generates people and ideas that can transform the challenges of the 21st century into opportunities to create value for business and society. That's what we do. And if we're going to do that, we needed to deepen diversify excellence and we needed to create more access. And so those are the two biggest things I wanted to, I wanted to, to, to try to uh, uh, really bring into the environment here. Well, those are great goals. And I mean, me and Sherry, as you're talking, are like leaning in like, we will follow you. <laughs> you know, be like, yeah, you got it, man. But it's 2010, yeah. you know, and this was probably a little bit of a different place. So, and me and Sherry were talking about it earlier, is I wonder if the, some of the deeply entrenched folks at NYU from in a different time were resistant to that at all. And how did you deal with that? So, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you walk into an environment, you walk into a place that's already really, really good. I mean, Stern's a great institution. How do you make the case for change for a place that's already pretty wonderful? Not an easy thing to do. So, a lot of conversations, a lot of thank you notes, you know, because people people don't give you money on the first try. 
<laughs> takes a lot of thank you notes to change the world. It's one thing I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be patient. So one thing I will say, I mean, this is sort of kind of going back to that Jamaican upbringing. There's a saying in rural Jamaica that we say, one, one cocoa fill basket. So cocoa trees actually grow pods, right? And that's where you get the chocolate from. You pick the pods from the tree. And if you're picking cocoa pods from a tree, you put them into your basket. And the saying is one, one cocoa fill basket. So in other words, you the only way to fill your basket with cocoa is you got to pick the pick them one at a time. It's it's a process. It just takes time. So you have to be patient. What I will say is that I'm I'm an enormously patient person in some respects. I'm also really persistent in that, you know, I always felt that the goals we had for the school were the right goals. Oddly enough, one of the things I learned from my from being a scholar translating my job as dean when you're when you're when you're when you're writing articles for publication you send them off to these very learned journals you spend let's give you a sense of the, how the process works when you're in graduate school you spent four years writing a dissertation two years taking classes and two years writing your dissertation uh, in my case there were three essays that ended up being my phd thesis then I had to send each chapter of my thesis off for publication. So I spent probably four months revising each of those chapters, sent them off to a, a journal, and each of those papers was rejected many times before it was accepted for publication. And even when the door was left open for publication from the editor, you get, you, you get what's called a referee report back from an anonymous set of referees who read your paper and send it back if you're lucky. Nice idea, here are three single-spaced pages of comments as to what you need to do for us to consider publishing it. Oh, that's brutal. Right? So, this, so the process from submission to publication can easily be four years. And so your first instinct as a young professor, when you, you've spent all this time working on your thesis, you have this brilliant idea, and you get back this referee report, and the editor rejects your, your paper, you say, the referee was an idiot. <laughs> right? It's your first instinct. Yeah. But then, over time, at least for me, you develop this awareness. You say, you know what? Maybe they have a point, and you know what? My job is to make sure I write papers that nobody can misunderstand. So, if you take that attitude towards publishing, which I have taken, then when you come into a job like this, when you're tempted to say, they just don't get it, or, or you're tempted to say, you know, I'm smarter than everybody, I just, I see this and they don't. Say to yourself, you know what? It's your job to make the referee understand the paper. So you are very practiced in delayed gratification. Indeed. So, so you, do, you know, do, you know the, do you know what the marshmallow experiment? Oh, with the kids yeah, the and kids? the marshmallows? <laughs> you know this. Well, <laughs> I, I remember reading about it in psych and undergrad, but can you remind us? So the marshmallow experiment, which was run by a professor, I think his name was Walter Michelle, was, uh, ironically enough, he was a, a psych professor at Stanford University, and he ran this experiment at the Bing Nursery School. And the experiment ran as follows. So he invited kids into a room, and he had a marshmallow on a plate. And he'd say to the kids, okay, here's a marshmallow. I'm going to leave you in the room with a marshmallow. I'm going to wait outside for five minutes or ten. It was like five minutes. There was a bell in the room. So they, they said to the kids, if you can't wait, ring the bell, and we'll come back in and you get the marshmallow. The one marshmallow. The one marshmallow. But if you wait five minutes, you can have two marshmallows. Now, for a child, five minutes is like an eternity. I know. So the results basically went as follows. Some kids would just, as soon as they left the room, the kids would just eat the marshmallow. <laughs> just instantly just... just, just, just That's <laughs> right. No way, I'm a two-marshmallow kid. Right? Other kids would ring the bell and say, I just can't wait anymore. Come in and save me, right? Relieve me. 
<laughs> and then some kids would actually wait, like my wife would have waited. <laughs> yeah. Right. And gotten two marshmallows. And then she would have negotiated for a third <laughs> yes, marshmallow. Yes, exactly. And gone home and saved them, right? <laughs> she would have walked out with a s'more. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so what they what the, what so what Professor Michelle found is so so he just did this experiment, and then he documented what's happened to kids. And his, his daughter, who I think went to Bing, later asked him, like, what did you do with all that data? You know, what, what happened to all those kids? And he realized that he should have done a follow-up. So what he basically did, he, he then correlated people's life outcomes with whether they s- scarfed a marshmallow instantly, rang the bell, or waited. And lo and behold, he found the kids who could wait for two marshmallows by far away were more successful on a number of dimensions than the kids who couldn't wait. So delayed gratification is key. Absolutely. Wow, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> so you're a two marshmallow kind of guy. I'm Are a two you marshmallow sure you're guy. not a psych professor? <laughs> <laughs> you told that really well. <laughs> I came across I, uh, that story reading, so I don't remember where it was, but then I researched it because I wanted to understand it because I, I, I saw parallels between that and the and and, and discipline when I, when I wrote my book because I said the key to you know the key for countries to do well is for leaders to understand this principle of delayed gratification and to be willing to to, con- to convey that to their people. Because when countries get into trouble is when when people want instant results, and we just know whether it's in business or in life. Another to make an expression my dad loved is long road draw sweat, shortcut draw blood. So basically, like if you try to take a shortcut, things are going to end badly. So the long road, it's really hard. You're going to sweat like crazy, but usually pays off. And delayed gratification is sort of the same principle. Eight years as dean, and. You know, that in the scheme of life is not, no, a, I mean, it's nearly a decade, so it, it's, it's a Yikes. long time, but it's not, you know, 50 years, not 100 years. Right. What seeds have you planted that will flourish for the next 50 years that you talked about we'll Grow into a earlier. beautiful tree. Well, time will tell. What I hope will really stick is this idea of access. We've gone from zero full scholarships for undergraduates to we've got 37 kids in full scholarship now. By the fall, we'll have uh, roughly 50. And more importantly, I think this is the idea of, of um, to be a great business school, you not only have to have great ideas and be as important for Silicon Alley as you are for Wall Street, but you've also, we also have a mission to, if we really want to do something about income inequality, the best way to do this is to bring poor, more poor kids to business school. So I hope that will really stick. I think that 10 years from now, 15 years from now, Stern can be the most important destination for talent for major corporations anywhere because of the diverse and the broadest sense of perspective kind of student we'll have. Uh, I think we can be the most important school from that, from that standpoint. This principle of deepening diversification, I think is you know really bearing fruit for us. You know We launched the first FinTech specialization. I think we're gonna be a real leader in that area. I believe that the ecosystem growing up in New York City all around, literally around the school, that word literally is overused, but in this case, it's, it's the right word. Because, you know, just outside of our doors, you know, down Broadway, Broadway and Howard and kind of Greenwich, in, that, in this general area, the number of young exciting companies, not just tech companies, but a whole variety of companies that are popping up are, and, and big companies like IBM that are over in Astor Place that are desperately seeking more business talent that is tech savvy, that is data savvy, that, that is digital savvy. We have an obligation to feed that ecosystem. We're going to do that. I'm confident of that. And our legacy is going to be, you know, a school that was faced with the financial crisis in 2010. People were questioning our importance and our longevity. You know, we turned, you know, that challenge into an opportunity to say, here's how we be even more important going forward. And I think we're going to do that. Absolutely. Confident of that. I, I mean, we got an email from you this semester. And I think that... You read it. 
We, of course we do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know which one you're referring to, but yeah. bottom, I read all, all my emails. Them, and then I forward them to my parents, <laughs> actually. Good to know. But so we got an email um, from you, and you know, Sherry and I were, were, were upset, you know, disappointed, because what the email said was that you're going to leave the deanship mm-hmm. at the end of this year, mm-hmm. and you're going to return to teaching. Mm-hmm. And in your time as the dean, you know, you've, you've made change. You've done incredible things for the school. And you just talked a little bit about your legacy. What would you say to the people that you've worked with that have been with you on this journey? You know, what would you want to say to them as you, you step down out of this great leadership position and become a professor again? Thank you. First and foremost, I'm really grateful. You know, we, we talked earlier in the conversation about what it takes to actually get anything done. You need people. I think I've been very faithful to the vision that I've tried to articulate. I can honestly say I've been, I've, I've, I've always put the school first and everything, everything that I've, I've, I've done, I've tried to think, okay, how can this be useful for the school in terms of things I've done outside the school even? It's always thinking, about, okay, well, how do we create connections and opportunities? Even with all that, I can open doors and I can make connections, but ultimately you need people to go through those doors. You need people to then go through and build you know, the connective tissue. So whether it be launch or whether it be scholarships, in the case of launch, it's the administrators and some key faculty who really, in some instances, understood the vision better than I understood it. Now, I'll, I'll never forget. In the fall of 2010, I had a conversation with Adam Brandenberger. It was, in me- it was a meeting in the, f- in the office of Sir Shapiro, one of our, our management professors. There, were, and there must have been about eight of us in the room. We were all talking. And I was trying to articulate you know, how in the, you know, in, the, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, we needed to get students and faculty thinking about, you know, in a more multidisciplinary way, and we need to move BS beyond finance and all these things. I was like articulating, trying to, you know, really redraft that paper, right, get people to see this idea. And I remember Adam just, like, spit it back to me. Like, I was like, he understands this better than I do. <laughs> he gets this. And I knew that he was the person that I needed, that we needed, to go make this happen. And he did. He recruited a number of faculty members. We started having meetings with all the departments and recruiting various senior and junior faculty to be part of kind of the, the we wasn't called launch that we didn't know what we were going to call it, but this sort of new way of bringing students into the school and the, and the administrators. People, some people who are not, weren't even, are even hearing were like Lizette Hernandez and played a major role in helping us kind of flesh this all out. So whether it be launch or whether it be the administrators who actually put together the scholarship program, but a lot of time, you know, writing those thank you notes and having conversations with donors, trying to find common points of interest that lead to the resources. But ultimately, somebody has to actually go out and, you know, admit the students, bring them in, create the mechanisms. There's just not enough time in the day for me to do all those things. And, and so they're, they're incredible people who make all this happen. So it's a long-winded way of saying, uh, it's the, the thing I feel most compelled to say is thank you. You know, people here, um, you know, we, we talked to a lot of people before we came and talked to you today, and, and it seems in our research that people here... Research me. Oh, yeah. Of Uh-oh. course. I'm not going to walk in cold, man. <laughs> you mean you didn't research us? <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, we talked to a lot of people, and you know what my, like, empirical conclusion is? Yes. Oh, I, I, I love empirics. Yeah. My <laughs> empirical conclusion is that people that work and go to school here really love you. They really think that your leadership has been really important to this school. And as you transition to a different role, what are you going to do to maintain leadership in your new role? Well, number one, it's really 
gratifying to hear. I'm sure there are probably a few folks who don't love me. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. We all but, no, but, but, it's, no, but it's, it's really gratifying to hear that. I really try to try to be true to true to the mission here. It's a great question. So for me, what I've got to figure out, and I want to take some time to do this. So I think it's the I think it's the right time to step down. We've got a lot of momentum. A lot of momentum on scholarships. Some of the things that I alluded to, the new, um, some new programs we'll be launching this spring. So it's just a good time. You know, it's either I think it's either pass the baton now with forward momentum. I want to be able to. You know, I came in with a headwind, the financial crisis. So it feels like it'd be a great thing to pass the baton to my successor, whoever she or he might be, and let them run with that. And also because I think there are some real challenges in the world right now, with respect to issues that I care deeply about as an immigrant kid from a small country. That's deeply dependent on globalization for its success, as are many other small countries. And the question for me is how to take the substantive things that are in my head <laughs> and that I've written about and the imper- all the data that I've looked at and the conclusions that I've reached and communicate th- those things in a way that resonates as much with ordinary Americans around the country in places that aren't. New York and San Francisco and Washington, D.C. and Chicago about opportunity. There isn't as much with them as they will with people in Accra, Ghana or Indonesia or Nigeria or other places in the world that are desperately dependent on trade, capital flows, immigration and the migration of ideas across borders, um, not only for their prosperity, but for their survival. And I think that leadership is going to be critical to that. I don't quite know how yet. One of the things I've got, to, I, I want to do is spend some time thinking about what you know what I've learned about communication and figure out how to communicate complex ideas even more simply to the people to whom they have to be communicated. If we, and I say we, I mean that kind of the, the broadest kind of global sense as a kind of a race of people, human beings, are going to be able to achieve the prosperity that's there for all of us to have. So, you know, as much progress as we made in the last 40 years, globalization is an amazing thing to lift people out of poverty. It's extraordinary. But there's still too much poverty. There's still too many kind of unmet opportunities. We've got to decide, you know, whether we want to have a zero-sum world, which is kind of, right now we're kind of, the world is kind of mired in what I call zero-sum thinking. If, uh, if Sherry or if Frank have more, Peter has less. It's just not, that's just not true. But that narrative is... Is, it resonates with people during times of stress. It's a long-winded way of saying I've got to. I want to figure out how to make economics real, meaningful, understandable for people and outside of the metropolis. Any town USA. Any town USA. Thank you. Any town USA. Make it as meaningful for any town USA as it is for those citizens in countries all over the world. What do you anticipate hearing? What do you want to hear from those individuals? I anticipate hearing. What is that? Why does that matter for us? How's it going to help me feed my kids? How's it going to help me, you know, get my husband off of opiates? These are really important questions. Got to have answers for that. The challenge is a lot of the answers to those questions require marshmallow thinking. You can't just leave people in the room and expect them to wait five minutes and get two marshmallows. There's got to be a bridge. They're going to eat that marshmallow. Exactly, exactly. It sounds like you're trying to give people that can't even keep the lights on big picture economic ideas. We've got to give them some, but you also got to give them, but again, like, go back to Miss Mama. There's got to be some bread today, too. We're kind of talking in abstract terms, but these are the things that I'm wrestling with. And I have, you know, in, in the, day to, the day-to-day of this job just doesn't allow for enough time to really think deeply about how to do this. So that's what I, so that's what I plan on doing. Try to figure this out and then how to communicate it simply and clearly and, and to reach people. 
Sounds like you're trying to create the mental space that you once had roaming around the hills of Jamaica with your machete. Whacking. Yeah, exactly. Clear out those bad ideas. Yeah. There, I think there's, there's a lot of noise. The great thing about this world that we live in now is that, you know, technology has really democratized the ability to get your ideas out there, which is a plus. The downside of that is there's, there's also a lot of noise. So the trick is figuring out. Firstly, you got, firstly, you gotta have content. You guys know that, right? Yeah, so, we're making a podcast. You're making a podcast. <laughs> great content. You know how are you, how are you going to get that great content out there? But you need space to do that, and and it's yeah, it's back to the creative process. But but again, what I've learned though, it's the creative process isn't enough. It's not enough. It's not enough just to have a great idea and to paint a beautiful picture on the canvas. You got to make sure people see it and hear it, and feel it. So you've been a teacher, mm-hmm. and you've been a dean, and you work at colleges and graduate school programs, and you have a son that's college age. You know, how has your time in these leadership positions changed how you interact with your son, especially as you try to filter out the noise of the good ideas and the bad ideas for him maturing and growing? Yeah, so my college age son in, in particular, and then also I've got three other sons. There are four of them. It's really interesting. I'd say the first order effect on all of my kids has been that they spent all their time around colleges and universities. So for them, it's just, it's just absolutely axiomatic, assumed they're going to college. And just pause for a moment, you realize that in this country, maybe a third of U.S. adults have a college degree. So it's still it's less than half the population. And my kids just assume they're going to college. The roles that I've played have given them a huge advantage in life just in that their, their assumptions, their expectations are... I'm going to college. But everything else has to be sort of seen in that context. That's sort of first order effect. And then, you know, it's also a challenge to them because I obviously have high expectations. And, and I, see, I see a lot of kids who don't have much. I expect them to do something with what they've been given. Both my parents had PhD, have PhDs. My wife's an MD. So my kids are inheriting a lot of human capital. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that puts them in some ways in a tough spot. One of the most impactful conversations I've ever had was with Lloyd Blankfein. I was in the job maybe, I don't know, I may be in the job for six or seven months. And our office got a call from Lloyd Blankfein's office saying, Mr. Blankfein would like to have lunch with the dean. Goldman Sachs employs a few of our students. I went to have lunch with Lloyd Blankfein. You guys did your research. I did my research. I was always prepared to answer all sorts of questions. And the first question he asked me, you know, he said, tell me about your family. So we had a conversation about the kids. And he wanted to know what my sons did. And I said, well, all the boys play the violin, um, but all my boys also do sports. And I said, you know, I, I have all my kids play sports, not so much because I want them to be athletes, but because I think they've got it pretty good in life. And I want them to have something in which they've got to exert themselves, ex- experience some physical strenuous, adversity, right? Yeah, yeah, adversity of some kind, some strenuous thing. And he looked at me. You know, and he said, you got to remember, your kids have it pretty tough. <laughs> what, what are you talking about? He said, um, he said, look at your resume. He said, your kids, your sons have big shoes to fill. You know, it was like someone smacked me in the head with a brick. I just never, never thought about what I do that way. And so what that conversation really did for me is it made me just realize, okay, I've got to just sort of think about from time to time how I'm coming across to my sons because I want to make sure that they're not feeling they have to do things because their father's the dean or their father played college football or whatever, you know. And so, like, for instance, my eldest son, who is a college football player, 
we were talking, we, we had a conversation that was over the Christmas holiday, and he was telling me that he wanted to major in economics and math. And I said, you know, you don't have to do this, right? <laughs> just like you don't have to play football for me. Like, you know, I want you to do this because you want you want to do this. And he looked at me, sure, and I said, you know, Dad, I kind of like football. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you're like, shocks, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, so it was just was telling me, you know, like he's doing this because he wants to do it. It's a great question because on the upside, there's all this knowledge that I can sort of impart to them. You got to be careful about how you share it because, um, you know, I want them to make their own life choices. My wife and I, my wife, Lisa, is the reason why I've been able to do any of this. Lisa's by far the most talented intellect in the family. You know, she's got, was an undergrad at Yale, did a, got her MD at Yale, did her residency at Harvard, at Harvard Medical School in psychiatry and child psychiatry. Yeah, that's not too shabby. Uh, I was an AP in American Psychiatric Association, Glaxo Welcome Fellow. I mean, she's, I mean, Lisa's a really talented person. Dinner conversations must be unbelievable, <laughs> I know. by the way. But I say all this to say that I think that what we bring as parents is a perspective that says, you know what, we've seen some pretty fancy places, uh, whether it be the Stern School of Business or Yale College or Oxford or UNC. We both have the perspective that the most important thing about educating your children and preparing them for college is that they go to the best college for them not the best college they can get into. That's the perspective we have to get. So with, so with, my, so with my sons, I'm, incredibly, I'm, inc- I'm an incredibly demanding father. I'm an immigrant, and when you're an immigrant, it's like, you know, you feel like you got to dot every I across every T or they're going to kick you out of the country. <laughs> There's this incredible drive that you have to prove yourself. And that just, you know, that just never goes away. In me, my my kids are obviously having a very different experience. They're born in the U.S. Their dad's the you know, business school. Their mother's an MD. Like life isn't that hard. But the way in which I'm demanding on my kids is not that you know you have to sort of live up to the family name. You know, you're a Henry. You know, <laughs> it's not like that. It's more. Tell me what you're passionate about. Tell me what you're really excited. What you what you like to do. Whatever those things are, I want you to bust your tail whatever those things are. That's the way in which I'm demanding. In the same way, I'm thinking, I think I'm demanding of all our students. I, t- you know, I tell our, you know, our students at launch, like, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but when you tell me that like, this is what you want to do, we're going to say, go and be the best that you can be. No half measures. No half, no half measures, no half stepping anywhere. And my, and my boys know, like, that's the thing. I'm a very patient person. The one thing that gets me to sort of lose my cool, to, to blow my stack, is half-hearted effort. There's just no place for it. (laughs) You heard it, Sherry. You better be hustling. Uh, Well, but it sounds like your philosophy that you brought to your deanship and in your teaching is very much mirrored in your parenting style, which is everyone is an individual. Mm -hmm. Everyone is parented or taught in an individual way because that is the only way for them to reach their potential. Absolutely. So it seems like they're diverse in their own ways in terms of their interests. Yeah, they're all very different. Very different kids. Uh, I've got a real portfolio. Well, this is going to be on, uh, you know, the uh, the internet. It's a podcast. I mean, your, your son could listen to college. You want to just, like, give him, a, give him a message real quick? Hey, Christian. I'm not sure when you're going to be listening to this, but if school is still in session, you should get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, you better be studying. <laughs> and a shout-out to Langston and uh, Hayden and Harrison as well. And, of course... Lisa's just extraordinary. <laughs> How did you meet her? So Lisa and I met, uh, I was in graduate school. My first year of graduate school, I was, a, I was a first year of the PhD program at MIT. Lisa was in her first year of residency in the Harvard Longwood Psychiatry uh, Residency. And her undergraduate roommate was finishing up the PhD program at MIT in economics. 
and decided that Lisa and I needed to meet. She had arranged a housewarming party that first that she and her roommate were having. Lisa's roommate, undergraduate roommate, was a woman named Fiona. Uh, Fiona Scott Morton. Fiona now teaches at the Yale School of Management. Fiona had arranged a housewarming party in which Lisa and I were supposed to both attend and then meet. I ended up not going to the party because I had too much uh, game theory homework to do. Cool. <laughs> cool move. You can see how popular I was as a kid. So Lisa and I ended up not... So actually, Lisa called me. Uh, this is in the old days of answering machines. And she called me. I wrote down the message and then lost the piece of paper. So I didn't get back to her for a while. She called me again. I, I, I did finally call her back. And the message she left me was that, you know, she had gotten my name from Fiona Scott Morton. She knew I had gone to school in North Carolina. Her mother was from North Carolina. She thought it would be neat for us to meet sometime. So I thought, well, that's kind of neat. So let's, you know, we, we'd have lunch sometime. So we got together for lunch. I thought we were getting together just for lunch. Like a lunch lunch, not like a date lunch. <laughs> <laughs> But kind of halfway through this lunch, for which Lisa was actually two and a half hours late. No. She was late. She was very late. Two and a half? And you were wait, there? You stayed there? I stayed. So oh, she must have been a pretty incredible person for you to wait two and a half hours. Well, I hadn't met her. I hadn't even met her at that point. But the, the, the background was she had been calling in to my answering machine, leaving messages to the effect that basically the person who was supposed to call, she, she had, uh, had, had called the night, night before. And the person who was supposed to come in to, to, to relieve her was late showing up. So I had no excuse to leave because I knew she was going to be late. So I hung around and kind of halfway through lunch, it started, it sort of occurred to me. I thought, I wonder, is this more than a lunch? Hey, this, this is a date. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 the trouble was that at that point in time, I had actually been corresponding via old fashioned handwritten letters with a young woman who I had known as an undergraduate. Uh, I was courting this young woman. Via letter. Via letter. Halfway through lunch, I'm wondering, you know, it's all about, yes, about assumptions, right? We're taking game theory after all. What does she know? What does I know? What oh, do I know? no. Right? <laughs> is she thinking this is a date? But then, of course, I didn't want to be presumptuous and assume that she was interested because that'd be kind of a jerk thing to do. Yeah. To assume that the woman is interested in you. So now I've got a dilemma. Do I disclose that I am courting this woman, running the risk of seeming presumptuous, or do I just let it go and run the risk of being non transparent <laughs> you if, she, if she was interested in me it's a prisoner's dilemma like so so she gets up to go to the bathroom and I'm thinking oh my gosh I gotta just get this out I gotta just I gotta get this out because you liked her or just because you were so tormented by your own thoughts well she was a love she was a beautiful attractive very intelligent woman but mostly it was just I wanted to be honest. Oh my God, you're such a good person. Uh, <laughs> so she comes back, and uh, you guys probably aren't familiar with the Chevy Chase movies from the 80s. Yeah, a little bit. Fletch? Oh, yeah. Fletch right. is great. So I did a Fletch. I, I was wait, I waited for my I waited for my blurt moment. I'm gonna it's like I'm like, like I got I gotta just blurt this out. So she asked me what I was doing for the holidays. I said, Well, I'm going home for Christmas. When I come back, my girlfriend's gonna see me. <laughs> I, just, I just blurted it out. Oh my goodness! Um, and actually, it wasn't, she wasn't even really my girlfriend. That was an overstatement. But I just blurted it out. To Lisa's credit, she was very cool. Didn't bat an eye. Conversation continued, and I later discovered after that lunch. Lisa apparently had a phone call with her mom in which her mother asked a couple of questions and she said, who is this person X? I won't say the person's name on air. <laughs> who is this person X? And does she live in Cambridge? And does she have a ring? And No, no, and no. No, no, and no. <laughs> and Lisa's mother said, well, then what's the problem? Oh, no ring, no deal. <laughs> no ring, no deal. So... <laughs> So Lisa and I started dating officially, and so that was that was in December of 1993. Lisa and I started dating in 
February of 1994. Our first official date was Valentine's Day in 1994. And I left a con class early. Oh, no, no. <laughs> They work. Christian, stop listening immediately. Exactly. We're editing that out. Back to work, Christian. And um, we got engaged in May of the same year. Wow. So it was sometime when you know, you know. When you know, you know. Oh. Sherry loves a good romance story. I know. I'm like dying. You're like, <laughs> you're like flushed and red. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you, you you came in to talk to us today, and in some ways, a larger than life character. I mean, there's there's literally a cardboard cutout of you uh, that is life size. When I was a kid, the only cardboard cutouts that were life size were in Sports Authority, the store. And then I come here and, and, and you have one. I'm like, okay, I guess that puts it all in perspective. But you came in like a, a larger than life character. And now we've heard about like personal story about like loving your wife and Cordner. And we just thank you for being so like personal and honest. You thank know? you so much for being here. We This was a thrill of a lifetime. Yeah. It's my pleasure. It's the only way I know how to roll. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. That's awesome. And I think you learned a lot of economics terms. Yes. <laughs> we talk about marshmallows. Yeah. <laughs> goats. Uh, Christian, get back to work. <laughs> but no, thanks for coming. Thank you, guys. Police, I love you. And boys, I love you too. <laughs>